I don't know if y'all remember a man named Dan Quayle. Does anybody remember him? Well, um, Dan Quayle actually was a, is a strong Christian man. He was um, Presbyterian. Doesn't make him a Christian, but he's a Presbyterian and actually known as a very, um, uh, almost a fundamentalist. But uh, got into trouble when he started declaring that there was some sin in the camp in the United States. Started calling out moral issues in the United States, and all of a sudden he was receiving criticism. But he really got bounced on when there was a program called Murphy Brown. Murphy Brown was an unwed mother who had a baby. And, on, and of course, that was programmed on TV. And then uh, the, the upside of that, or the downside, was she was saying, fathers just aren't necessary. Well, he took issue with that, and of course, the media took issue with him. How could he say that, especially about Murphy, Murphy Brown, who was so in love? I mean, people were so in love with her. Well, I bring that up to say this. In 1 Peter, we find a great word of encouragement about Christians who are going through suffering. But for us, we tend to think that currently, boy, it's getting bad as Christians. People are starting to criticize us. Listen, it's been going on. This started back in, we see this particular incident, it's back in 1988. Anybody around in 1988? There's a bunch of you that weren't, Okay. I mean, we're talking 35 years ago. So this is not something that's new. This has been going on for centuries. It's been going on in Jesus' day. So suffering is not something that's new to us as Christians. So we, we need to be, kind of get over it. We're not special in terms of our particular society. Oh, man, it's, we really have it bad. <laughs> not really, okay? But we should expect it. Now... As you turn to 1 Peter, turn to 1 Peter 1, um, if you would put this slide up for me, I want to show you something. Keep going. Okay. There was, there was a lot on, that, on those slides, weren't there? A lot. I put that up for this reason. There was a, one of my favorite commercials a long time ago was a commercial that went like this. A guy sitting behind a desk picks up a phone, and he goes, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. I, yeah, sure, I can do that. Hangs up the phone, and he goes, how in the world am I going to do that? Well, all of those slides, that, that's, that's my situation. I can't do that. That's what I wanted to do, is go through First Peter, just um, verse 3, all the way through about verse 21. We're going to get through the first three verses, and that's all we're going to be able to do today, okay? So I can't do that. So what we want to do is focus on this passage, but realizing that there's a whole lot more, okay? Why is Peter writing this particular letter, and it's a letter of comfort? It's a letter that says, hey, Jesus went through this, and he uses Jesus as, as an example many times as he's going through this, but he says, you're going to suffer, and so this is how you do it. But before he can do that, he has to build a foundation, and that always answers the why question. You know, kids are, are notorious for asking why questions, and sometimes you can't give enough answers because there's always another, well, why, right? 
but we should have, um, now, even my, I got some family here, and they're going, what's he talking about me? No, 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 I'm not. So, but, but we should have a foundation. There should be a reason why we do things. There should be a reason. And so it, it, when we have the reason why, it makes all the difference in the world. I'm reminded of, a, of an incident, and I'm not even sure this is true, of a man who, during a holiday season, was called by his wife, who was out of um, the, the house at the time, and said, hey, hon, put, the, put the, hunt, the ham in the oven. Have you heard this? Put the ham in the oven. He goes, sure, I'll put the ham in the oven. She says, but be sure and cut the end of the ham off before you put it in the oven. He says, why do we cut the ham off before we put it in the oven? She goes, you know, I don't know, but cut the ham off and put it in the oven. We'll talk about it later. Well, she started thinking about it. So she called her, her mom. Hey, mom, why did we cut the ham off before we put it in the oven? She says, I don't know. We've always cut the ham off before we put it in the oven. Well, why don't we call grandma and see what she says? Well, grandma, how come we, you've taught us to cut the ham off before we put it in the oven? Why do we cut the ham off before we put it in the oven? Well, we had to do that because our oven was small. Well, see, it, it makes a difference to know why we do something, right? And that's why in these first passages, it really begins in, in verse 3 and goes all the way through chapter 10, I mean, ver, uh, chapter, 10 verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 10. So that's the whole foundation for why and, and how to suffer properly for Christ. We're only going to get to the basic few verses in, in chapter 3. But to give you an idea about the suffering, suffering, the word suffering is used 11 times, five chapters used 11 times, but also tr the word trial is used a couple of times as well. So it is obviously an, a, um, an emphasis in this particular book. Now, to show you a little bit about the situation, we often think that suffering, and especially for these people, must, must include, because when you think about early Christian suffering, you think about people who were burned, people who were thrown to lions. This is before that. So we're not really talking about a situation where these people are going through physical suffering. They're going through social suffering. They're outcasts. They're different. They're not doing what everybody else is doing. They're not thinking what everybody else is thinking. And in Roman culture, that was important. You need to conform. Everybody should be doing this, but they're not. And so they're, they're being ridiculed. They're, sometimes they're, they don't have jobs because of it and so on. That's the kind of suffering that they're going through. That's the kind of the suffering that we're thinking about here in our culture today. We're not thinking about, well, we're, we're about to be burned to the stake. Now, that may come. That may come. But that's not what we're talking about here, and that's not what Peter has in mind. He has in mind the same kind of things that we're going through. Now, do you ever read the paper and think that, man, they're not talking very well about us Christians? Yeah. When was the last time they were talking well about us Christians? It happens all the time. So this is very applicable to us. But let me give you an idea. There was a, um, they used to have, um, just like we have today, people who criticize Christians. And this particular fellow, is a name, uh, his name is Celsus, okay? And he was considered one of the first known public figures to actually write about um, Christians and write about them in such a way that he was trying to convince people not to be a Christian. 
And so let me just give you a couple of phrases out of a work he did. It's called The True Word, which is not in existence anymore. The true word really is the Bible, but his word is not. But anyway, here we go. He says, no cultural person draw near, talking about Christians. None wise, none sensible. For all that kind of thing, we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting incense, if anybody's a fool, let him come boldly. So he's talking about Christians. Hey, you want to be a Christian? Hey. But he's just getting warmed up. Here we go. Here's another one. We see them in their own houses. Wool dresses, cobblers, the worst, the vulgarest, the most uneducated persons. Hmm, nice, nice guy that sells us, but he's getting warmed up and he's really getting hot here. Listen to this. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp or worms convening in mud. Nice guy, you know. Criticism is, is not new for Christians. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus said this also. He said, you know, in suffering, he said, a teacher, I mean, a student is not above his teacher. He said, they hated, they hated me, they'll hate you. They persecute me, they'll persecute you. Well, it doesn't come as a surprise. No, I mean, Jesus said, this is the way it's going to be. So, in building that foundation, Peter writes this particular letter. And so, let's begin in, in um, chapter 1, and we'll go to verse 3 and just see if we can wade through this. It begins, let me just read this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled that will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is our context. That's our text for today. So, what does it mean to be blessed? It says blessed, it says blessed, the, um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean to bless somebody? That word bless is actually where we get the word eulogy. Now, when you think of eulogy, what do you think of? A funeral, maybe? Okay. What do they do at funerals? They try to speak well of somebody, right? There's a lot of lies are told at funerals. Have you, have you ever been to a funeral and, and you, they're describing this person who lived and now he's dead and you go, who is that person? Now here's one, one unfortunate thing about all funerals. When you can say something nice about somebody who's passed away, they're not there to hear it. You ever thought about that? Oh man, let's say some nice things about this guy who's dead. Oh, I'm sorry, I wish we'd have said these when you were living, and you should. So I would encourage you, start, when you have people in your life that you can say good things about, say it to them while they're alive. They're not going to hear it when they're dead. They can be encouraged while they're alive. It's too late when they're dead. But the word blessed means eulogy. I want to read a couple of 
of passages of Scripture to see about um, basically saying good things about God. That's, that's what it says to, to bless God. We're going to say good things. We sung great things about God uh, this morning. So here's, a, here's a, what I would call a eulogy. It's a Psalm 103. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Now we're going to start talking about things that God does. Who pardons all our iniquities, who heals all our diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. So we don't just say, ah, bless the Lord. We actually bless the Lord by doing what? Saying things about the Lord that are true. Things that he's doing for us. We're, 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 when we bless the Lord, we're talking about his character. We're talking about things that he actually does for us. Psalm 145, I will extol my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Remember those two words. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all his works. All his works shall give thanks to the Lord. Your godly works, godly ones shall bless you. That's a eulogy. So when Peter says, bless the, bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, what he's really saying, oh, all the things that we could say about God. It just goes on and on and on. You can't say enough good things and about God and to God, which is important. Now, we say, bless be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy. I want to give you a new definition of mercy. Most of the time, mercy and grace are explained like this. Mercy is God um, withholding from you something that you do deserve, and grace is God doing for you something, something for you that you don't deserve. Okay? Those, are, those are legitimate. I mean, no doubt about it. They're legitimate. I like this, though, as well, and it says, mercy is a compassionate love for the hopeless and the helpless, a compassionate love for the hopeless and the helpless. And grace is a generous love for the unworthy. Now, the reason it's important to understand those two words, first of all, back in verse 2, um, Peter says, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Fullest measure actually means a pl plethora of of stuff, so that he's, that's really where we get the word um, a plethora. Okay, so, but he's already talked about grace a little bit. Just mentioned it. Now he's talking about mercy. So it's under. It's good to understand what these things are. But think about mercy like this: without mercy, there is no grace. Okay, if God did not look down on us and have mercy on us then there would be no grace. God did, because God did something, that's grace, but God first had to have mercy on us, and then there's grace. And quite often those terms are used um, together when, when we see them in Scripture. For instance, 
Um, in Ephesians, matter of fact, turn to Ephesians. This, we, we could actually preach this sermon actually out of Ephesians because it's so, so similar. Just Ephesians 1. Actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to read verse 3 first and, and see if you see any similarity. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the having places in Christ. Often, these, this, these, this phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's almost verbatim, um, comes out of uh, first, uh, uh, I mean, 2 Corinthians verse 3. So here we, it's repeated. So it's, it's very important to these, to these folks because they understand just how gracious and merciful God is. But let's go on. Let's go to verse chapter 2. I would, we could read a lot, but let's go to chapter 2 in, in Ephesians and, and let's go to verse 4. Okay? Now we're going to begin there. Now he's already talked about in the first part of this, just how wretched we are and how, how sinful our life has been before we came to Christ, but Christ made us alive. So in describing us, how, how did Christ make us alive? It goes this, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now we could read on, because we're, it gets, gets real familiar. But because of the mercy, because of God's great mercy, he did something. He saved us. It, in other words, then grace came into action. Now, now we see the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, un, it's, it's, in, it's vital that we see mercy and grace together. You want grace? It's, it comes from God but because of God's mercy, he looked down on you. You were helpless. I was helpless. We had no hope. We, we've, we sing about that often. We, our only hope is Christ. God knew that. He saw in mercy and sent his son. Other verses we could go through. But the next phrase I think is very important. Go back to 1 Peter. Again, we're building a foundation here for, for, for suffering and, and suffering well. Not just suffering, but suffering well. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Interesting phrase. He caused us to be born again. Now, what do you think that means? It could mean a lot of things. If we go back to, to, and we're not going to turn there, but if we go down, back to Ephesians, just the first chapter in Ephesians, I'm going to go through it and just kind of show you um, what the cause might be. And we can see um, how he caused this. For instance, in, in our salvation, it's a full work of God. And here's why, and listen to this. I'm just going to use phrases that, that were used in, in, in Ephesians 1. His will, not the will of man. His grace, not the great, not the merit of man. His blood, his blood, not the sacrifice of man. His love, not the love of man. His kind intention, not the intention of man. His purpose, not, it's not the purpose of man. To the praise and glory of God 
not the praise and glory of men. I, I can keep going. When it talks about um, how did he do this, he did this through his son. That's used, oh, it looks like seven or eight times. And then, and then finally we have the Holy Spirit of promise. Our, our full guarantee, it's the Holy Spirit. He's the down payment. And some, some translations use that, the down payment. So we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, which was mentioned actually by Peter in the first couple of verses here um, in, in 1 Peter. But we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working in our salvation. God caused this. It's not something that you did. It's not some decision that you made. It's um, God caused this. Now, I'm gonna, I want to bring up something here that's uh, kind of fun to me. Most people and most Christians in this world are what we would call Arminian. If I say it Arminian, how many of you would know what that means? Okay. Um, what that really means is that that the, the ba- basic issue is with an Arminian is that man is bad, but he's not all bad. He's got some good qualities. And matter of fact, he's got choice, and he can, he can make choices. And so God presents a, a, a plan, and man either accepts or rejects it, but it's basically up to man. And you'll hear this in sermons. Now it's up to you. Okay? So... Um, and so the free will is a, is a big issue, and, and choice is a big issue. Those are two big things. And so the main difference between what we would call an Arminian and, a, and, a, and Calvinistic thinking is, with Calvin, it's all about God. So it's what we would call monergism, or mono meaning one. So it's just all about God. God does everything. In the Arminian camp, no, it's you and God, and, you know, and really it's up to you. God presents the plan, it's up to you. And so I come back to these two words, free will and choice. Now, we have a whole group of Baptists called free will Baptists. That's interesting. Free will Baptists. Actually, they're just baptizing Methodists because they believe it's up to you and you can actually lose your salvation because if you have all the choice, then you can choose and you can unchoose. So... We have free will. And then we have choice. Choice is a big thing. Man, you know, we have choices. Now, here's the challenge I want to present to you. Find me one verse in all the Bible that says man has free will. Do you know that free will is not even used in the Bible except in the Old Testament under free will offering? Wow. But we have, a whole, we have a whole denomination, free will Baptists. It's, I would at least give me a word that's in the Bible that's appropriate. Free will is not in the Bible. It, you cannot find it except associated with free will offering in the Old Testament, and that was voluntary. Okay? Now, you say, well, I have choice. You can't find one <laughs> verse in the Bible that says you have choice. Not a single verse in the Bible says that you choose. As a matter of fact, God, Jesus told his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So that's my challenge. I'm not trying to harp on something. I'm just trying to say, if you're going to be biblical, be biblical. Find it. Where is it? 
So if you're going to build a doctrine around something that is so, is so important to you, it, it, you ought to at least have a verse or two or something or hopefully a whole passage that teaches it. Now, here's the, here's the issue. The issue that comes up and, and is, is this. Doesn't man have to do something? Yeah, but God does that for him. He gives him. Matter of fact, what is it? What is it? What, um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We're familiar with that, aren't we? For by grace you've been saved. Right? And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of, what is a gift of God? Even your, even that, that grace that God gives you. Okay? Even that faith that God gives you is a gift from God. God gives that to you. So, the, what we have is responsibility. And so people say, well, we have the responsibility of man and we have the, the sovereignty of God. Okay? Now, both of those are true. Man has a response. God will hold you responsible. There's no doubt about it. You know, on judgment day, God's going to hold you responsible. So we have the responsibility of man, and we have the sovereignty of God. Now, both of those true, truths stand, but they seem somewhat contradictory, don't they? If God is doing all this, how am I held responsible? But we see that in, in, in um, Romans 9 is just a beautiful picture of this same discussion, where, you know, you say, well, well, if, if God does this, well, why am I held responsible? You know, and then who are you, old man, to argue with God? That kind of thing. So I, lo- I love Romans 9. It's a beautiful picture of man arguing with, with this d- particular doctrine. But when we have these two truths, then we have what's called an antinomy. Okay? An antinomy. Now, an antinomy is, is an apparent contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. They're two truths that stand side by side. And we have those in other, in other areas as well. But... The point of all of this is this passage says that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now, how would you explain born again? That's a tough one, really. Regeneration. Okay. Let's go to think about this. This is going to be a little bit of a mental challenge for you, Okay. Almost like to do a contest, but somebody would be embarrassed. But in John three, we have a, a gentleman named Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus by night. Now I think I will have the contest. It's kind of fun. All right, what does Jesus? What does Nicodemus say to Jesus? Somebody, ma'am, how to be born again? Yeah, how, how should I be born again? Right, something like that. You know what? He doesn't even ask a question. Wow. Here's the first thing he does. I'm glad somebody's saying, wait a minute. That's not in. You're wrong. First thing he does is, is compliment Jesus. He doesn't even ask the question. He says, listen, nobody can do. We all know that nobody can do these things, you know, unless, unless you're of God. That's all he says. Jesus then says, tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're, nobody can get into the kingdom unless they're born again. That's when the question comes. Then Nicodemus says, how shall a man be born again? How can a man go back into his mother's stomach and be born? Okay. 
But he doesn't start off with, hey, how do I get eternal life? He starts off with a statement. Now, that was just for fun. Here's, here's what's important. Jesus says, you, you must be born again. In Nicodemus's mind, he's thinking, born again what? Go back into my mother's womb. How can that, how's that even possible? Now, Jesus says this. You have to be born of the water and of the spirit. What does that mean? That's the key. If you open, if you have a study Bible, depending on your study Bible, this is where you get commentators really tatering out, okay? For every study Bible you have, you'll have a different explanation of what that means. It could mean, according to some, some of these commentators, well, we have to go all the way back to the Old Testament, and it talks about washing and cleansing and stuff, and that's, that's the baptism he's talking about. And Nicodemus would have understood that because he's a, you know, he's a, a Pharisee. Well, now, if you're going to explain, how would I apply that to you? Okay. Uh, you need to be born again, right, Mike? Yeah. Okay, Mike. Here's what you need to do. You need to go back to the Old Testament, do all the washing stuff, and then be born of the Spirit. I would, I'd make... So, then why would, why would um, Nicodemus go... Back to my mother's womb. I mean, it's, see, he's not, he's not getting it. First of all, that explanation, I think, is wrong. Old Testament explanation is wrong. Some say, well, um, the water really uh, pertains to the, to the word. I don't, I don't get that one either. And then some say, maybe John the Baptist. Look, the most logical, if you look at the context of this passage, it says this. You've got to be born physically, and you've got to be born spiritually. That's exactly what he's saying. It's no, it's born of the water, water baptism, okay, is, is, not, is not salvation. He's not saying you're born of the water or baptized in the water. It, a water birth is what we're talking about. A man, a woman needs to be born physically, but they also need to be born spiritually. That's, that's all he's saying. And that holds true. As you read the, the, the New Testament, it talks about physical, and the, the physical can inherit the spiritual and so on. That's right. That's what he's saying. It, you know, you can, you can um, die twice. You, you, born, okay. Born, yeah. born once, born once, died twice. That's right. Right? Got that, Mike? Help me out here. That's right. And so what he's saying is every person is born physically but a man has to be born spiritually. Now, where, he, where Jesus goes from this is very unusual because it really catches us by surprise. He says this, the wind blows wherever it wants, and you don't know exactly where it came from or exactly where it will end up. Correct? All right. Now, how does that explain, the, how does that explain your born-again experience? It's, in, it's unexplainable. It's, it's spiritual. It's some, not something that you can, you can actually explain to somebody, except I was just born again. All of a sudden, I was blind. Now I see. All of a sudden, things I read in Scripture didn't make sense. Now they make sense. We see, I, I remember a friend of mine who was lost. He says, man, when I go to, to church and sing those songs, they mean nothing to me. He says, I, have, I, said, I can't identify with any of those songs. Why? He, he was born once, but not twice. He had no spiritual eyes. He had no spiritual ears to hear, to see, and so on. 
And so when we, when we talk about being born again, we're talking about a life. You can see the change. Can you see the wind when it blows? You see the results of it, but you don't see it. Nobody has seen the wind. You don't see wind. You see the results of wind. You feel the results of wind. So that's the way it is for a Christian's life. When, when a, if you're born again, all things should become new. That's what we learn in, in Corinthians. Everything should be new in your life. Well, that's obvious. I, I, can, I can see the change. I can see the wind blowing through your life. And I can see now that you're not the same person. But I can't see the Spirit. And so when, 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 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's saying physical birth but you must be born spiritually, Nicodemus. Once you're born spiritually, I know it's, it's, it's hard to understand, but it's like the wind. You won't see it, but man, you'll see the effects of it. Okay, all right. Back to 1 Peter, when he's saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according... Now remember, now we're, we're, he, we're actually part of this eulogy who according to his abundant mercy, his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. I love that. We sang about the living hope, didn't we, this morning? Okay. Living hope is Jesus. And it says through the resurrection. Now, anytime you see the word resurrection, that automatically implies the full gospel, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, why is that? Well, if you have a resurrection, you've got to have a death. There's no, there's no resurrection without death. Well, if you have a death, you, somewhere you have to have a life. There's, there's no death without a life. So what are we talking about here? When we say resurrection, automatically we're implying death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes an interesting statement in, in 1 um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, talking about the gospel and about the, the, um, the Greek and, and, and the Jew, and Jew you know, expects things, and the Greek wants this, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jew, a stumbling block, to, I mean, to the, you know, to the Jew, a stumbling block, to the Greek, foolishness, right? But is he saying that's all he preaches? Christ crucified? You preach only Christ crucified, you got a dead man. Well, Paul, no wonder it's crazy. But that's not what he means at all. He doesn't mean he's not just, that's not the only thing he preaches. Well, what if you just preach the life of Christ? Well, you got a good man, but he died. What if you preach the resurrection? Well, that's supernatural, but what about the life? What about the, the cross? What about the, so on? Now, we know that Paul was not talking about only the um, the crucifixion of Christ, when he says Christ crucified. Now, how do we know that? Because in chapter 15, what does he say? Matter of fact, turn to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. This is one of the more important chapters in all the Bible, actually, when it talks about the, the gospel, it talks about the resurrection, and even, even 
um, in heaven and so on. But Paul talk, talks this way. He says, now I can know, this is verse 1 of chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again according to the scriptures, that he was uh, appeared to Cephas, that's, that's um, Peter, the person where, that writes this letter, then to the twelve, and after that five hundred, and so on. So he's saying the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but obviously it's the life of Christ as well. And so when... It, and even in, when we see the word resurrection, the implication is we're talking the whole gospel. We're not just talking one aspect of it. However, going back to 1 Peter, but he says this, we have a living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We have a living we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the living hope. You know, it's interesting. If you're a Muslim, you hold dear a man who's absolutely dead, who cannot hear, help you, and that's Muhammad. If you're, if you're a, a Mormon, Joseph dead, Joseph Smith dead, buried, gone. If you're of any other religion, in, in most, let's say you're a Christian science maker, Mary Baker Eddy started that one. Dead, gone. Well, what if I'm a, uh, what if I'm a Buddhist? Gone. You, every religion except Christianity either holds dear, worships something that's either dead or never existed to begin with. Only, only Christians actually serve a living Savior. That's why we have a living hope. If we don't have a resurrection, Paul says in this, back in chapter 15, we are a pitiful group of people. So much so that we're actually liars because we're telling people that they can have hope in something that doesn't even exist, that never happened, that Christ did not raise, rise from the dead. The resurrection is so important in the Christian life that if you study the book of Acts, that's the reason Paul actually ended up in prison because he preached the resurrection. That's the main thing. As a matter of fact, what happened was you have the Sadducees and you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why you're, they're sad, you see. Okay? And so the scripture tells us that they were fighting over the, the, this issue. As a matter of fact, they were fighting so hard that Paul was in the middle. So Roman soldiers had to come and rescue the guy. But it was all over the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they put him in prison. Once they were in, and they put him in prison first for his protection. But then, they say, then he, they, he says, yeah, but I want to appeal to Caesar. That's how he ended up in Rome over the resurrection primarily okay the resurrection is mentioned so many times in scripture i mean hundreds of times and it, it was the key issue 
When, many times when Paul was preaching, when he would get to the resurrection of Christ, uh-oh, even the Greeks would say, now wait a minute, that sounds a little ridiculous to me. When he was in Athens, that, what was the, that was the key issue. They were listening very intently until he talked about the resurrection. But the resurrection is the key issue for Christians. I say a key issue, not the key It is a key issue. Key issue. We, and that is our living hope. Now, let's go to the next one. It says, to, it's a um, resurrection from, of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now, verse 4. It's interesting that this is somewhat of a description of heaven. But it's a description kind of in a backwards way. Your inheritance. Well, it's, he's telling you what it's not. Okay, I always found this very interesting. You know, if you say, well, I, I've got an inheritance. What, what's it like? Well, it's not this, and it's not that, and it's not that, but it is reserved for you. Okay, and that's what he says. Look, he says, obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. In other words, well, it's not perishable. Then he says, well, it's not defiled. And then he says, well, it won't fade away, but it is reserved for you. You think, man, can't you do a little better than that? <laughs> you know, have you ever seen the, uh, there was a movie out. First there was a book, then there was a movie. All of it's fiction, as far as I'm concerned, because it's, it's not based on anything that's worthwhile believing in. Heaven is for real. You ever heard of that book? Heaven is for real. Then they made a movie, Heaven is for Real. Oh, my heavens. Some Christians actually read that for, for some reason, all of a sudden believe heaven is for real. This was a kid who was three years old, and a number of years later, he relates his story to his parents about he was, he was having an operation. He never died. It was not even an a, um, out-of-body experience or whatever. He relates some little thing that went on in his brain while he was under, while he was sick and recovering. And all of a sudden, his father takes it. And his father was a preacher, okay? And he, he believed the kid. And so based on what the kid told his dad, now his dad believes in heaven. Excuse me. I mean, if you believe that, listen, you, there's something wrong with your brain, really. Does that sound harsh? It's true. It may sound harsh, but I, I mean, the Bible, well, we don't know all we'd like to know about heaven. All right? We don't. We know Jesus is there. We'll know we'll be like him. We, we know that it's reserved for us. We know it's great. It, it, we know that it's one of those things that we hold to because uh, uh, we have a hope in, in heaven. But, you know, we can't really, with a lot of definitive um, Descriptions tell each other exactly what heaven's going to be like. We know it's going to be great and Jesus is going to be there. We're going to be like him. It's going to be great. That's what I know. And I know it's going to be better than here. But when we start thinking of heaven as well, it's the streets of gold. And it's, listen, that comes in a book that is obviously poetic, descriptive of a lot of things. 
It also describes things that you couldn't possibly imagine that even exist, not about heaven, but even other things. So it's in Revelation. And I'm not saying Revelation is a bad book. I'm saying you have to understand that Revelation is a book that is very poetic and prophetic and uses all kinds of different language to describe things that are real, but you can't take the descriptions themselves as being real. Does that make sense? In other words, what they're trying to describe is it is there but the description of what's there is just it's it's hard to imagine this we see the same thing when we when we're looking at um let's say the song of solomon you start telling your wife some of the things that solomon told is is saying like about the teeth and the hair and you go my hair's not like goats what what are you talking about I mean, you, you can't, you, you see what I'm saying? It's, you, you, you got to be careful about how you describe things. But we know that, we know it's, it's beautiful. We know it's undefiled. There's no sin there. There's no, there's no pain. There's no suffering. But what's interesting to me too, these are the same kinds of words, by the way, that are talked about as your genuine faith. It, um, it's also talked about the blood of Christ and, and Christ himself being unperishable, being pure. These are very similar words that talk about Christ. I've got a very close friend who now is in heaven, pastor friend. Um, he believed that basically we, in, the Trinity would all be wrapped up in Christ. And as the more I read scripture, I'm not so sure he's all wrong about that. He may be all right about it. Because so many of the descriptions of heaven, so many of the descriptions of Christ really are just parallel to each other. And so when we get to heaven, the most important thing about heaven is we'll be with, we'll be with Christ. That's the most important thing. And now, if we get caught up in all the descriptions of heaven and think, oh man, I can't wait for the streets of gold or I can't wait for the pearly gates and it's amazing that Peter's always at the pearly gates. I've never figured, why is Peter always there? It's used in so many jokes, it's amazing. But anyway, Peter's always at the pearly gates. So I don't, and who knows if there's going to be a pearly gate. But if you're caught up in that, it's the same thing as, as a child being caught up in the presence that the parent gives rather than the parent himself. If I have a child that goes away, Fortunately, all my kids live real close to me. But if I had a child that was away for a long time and then came to me and said, hey, what kind of present do you have for me? The first, and I haven't seen them in years, and that's all they're, they're really interested in. What are them, am I going to give them a pearly gator? And they're not me? It's not me? I'd be really disappointed. Matter of fact, we'd have a conversation. Okay? So... What we see here is a description of what heaven is not like, but, it's, it's, but you can turn it around and say it's like that. So in other words, we know that, um, that it's not perishable. We know that. We know it's going to be everlasting and so on. But we don't know exactly what it's like. But it's reserved for you and for me. We are, now it's, if you're being persecuted and you're suffering wrong that's kind of important because ultimately as we'll see as you can see in this passage or see in this book ultimately your suffering is going to have reward 
That's, that's, what he, that's why he's even describing heaven here. There's a reward out there. There's suffering, yes, but there's a reward. In suffering, suffering's never fun. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. But even that gives a, gives a reason, right? That it actually leads to maturity. It actually leads to something better. When Jesus, in, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, it says, uh, talking about the, um, um, about, about the great cloud of witnesses, just, just mentioned all, the, all the, the great people in chapter 11. Then it says, seeing he's great, we're um, compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that was set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now watch this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He didn't look at the cross with joy. He looked at past the cross for joy, Right? Who for the joy that was set before him endured this? And that's why Peter over and over uses in this, in this book uh, the example of Christ's suffering. He says he gave you an example. You know, when he was reviled, he was reviled not again, and so on. And so we have that, that, um, that assurance. So we are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation. That word protected is, is we're guarded, okay? Um, so it's, it's a guard. It's not only that God is guarding us, but by the power of God. And when you think of the power of God, it's, it, what kind of power are we talking about? Creating power? All power? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about Real power. We're talking about power that is that that created the earth. We're talking about power that created you. We're talking about power that controls everything. Remember the um, Psalms uh, says this, or the, one of the Psalms says, "the the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord." That's every king, not just one king. We're talking about every king. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wants. That's, that's power. Well, when we're talking about resurrection power, it's, it's Christ who raised, who raised uh, it says in, in Ephesians uh, 1, it, God raised um, Jesus from the grave. And he said, that's the same kind of power that saved you. That's the same kind of power that's gonna, that holds you, that guards you. So your salvation is not in your, your determination your salvation is in the power of God. You, you, do you, I know you probably already believe that um, once saved, always saved. Now, you've got to be careful about that term, okay? Sometimes we say once saved, always saved. In other words, I walked down the aisle, I got saved, but man, I'm living like the devil, okay? But I'm uh, once saved, always saved, so I'm Okay. That's called antinomianism. Antinomian means no law. In other words, man, I'm, I, don't, I, have, I don't live by any law. I'm, I'm saved by grace. Man, that's it. I'm, I'm free. I had a friend whose son died of, uh, basically drank himself to death. Fairly young man. He was convinced that his son 
was going to heaven. The guy gave no evidence, not a single shred of evidence ever in his life that he actually followed Christ. But this man said he did, he did walk the aisle. Now, I'll tell you this. This man also said, I'm an antinomian. Publicly, to me, said, I'm an antinomian, which means that once this man, once a person makes the decision, they could live any way they want and they still go to heaven. That's not in the Bible. Matter of fact, go, go back just a couple of verses. Look at verse 2. It says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. There's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost right there. Sprinkled by His blood. Um, for obedience. Does anybody have a, a translation that says for obedience? To the faith? Yeah. We're saved, yeah, to go to heaven, that's true, to serve, yes, and so on. But we're saved for obedience. You, we've already quoted, at least in part, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Does anybody know what 10 says? Turn to it. Ephesians 2. This one is, I don't know why we don't quote this when we, when we quote the other two but it's seldom ever quoted. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, boy, we love these two verses. I'm telling you. 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one will boast. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, wait, there's verse 10. Let's see. For we are his workmanship. That's actually a word, poema. By the way, it's the only time it's used. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. What? For good works, wait a minute. I don't. I thought I wouldn't. I'm not saved by good works. That's not what it says. You're not saved by good works, but you're saved for good works. Have you ever heard? Um, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, so be, bear with me. But it has a, has a purpose. That there. That Paul and James are are at odds with each other. One preaches works. And one preaches grace. Have you ever heard that? You know that. Two, first of all, it's completely wrong, especially if you read the book of James and has anything, have any knowledge at all. But let me show you this. I want you to turn to Acts because this answers this question. This answers so many questions, actually. Um, misconceptions. Turn to Acts, the twenty-sixth chapter. And we will, okay, we'll begin with verse 27, okay? Now, Paul has already made a defense between, with, before Felix. Now he's making a defense before Festus, who's the new governor, but then, um, but then the king comes into town, King Agrippa, he comes into town with his wife Bernice, and so they're making another defense, okay? So he's already laid out his beautiful defense of his faith and really an explanation of the faith. And he says, verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. By the way, that's Old Testament, right? So we know the Old Testament's important. So do you believe the prophets? I know you do. 
Agrippa replied, in short time, when you persuade me to be a Christian, some translations, which I like better, say, you're almost persuading me to be a Christian. And Paul says, I wish, in verse 29, I wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they begged him to stay a little longer and so on. Now, this, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I needed to go back up. I need go, go go a little further up. It's so important. I, I can't, I can't leave it. Okay. Verse 19. Let's start with that. I'm just reading a couple of verses here. In verse 19, he's just explained to him his heavenly calling. Okay? So uh, the Damascus Road calling. He just explained that to him. Then he says this. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I kept declaring both to those at Damascus, which would be Jews, and also at Jerusalem, those would be Jews, and then to all the regions around Judea, that would be Jews, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent Turn to God and do what? Perform deeds appropriate to repentance, which is what? Works. Paul says when he preaches, he preaches grace and it should be followed by works. So what he's saying and what James is saying is exactly the same thing. It's no different. It's also true that Paul, according to this verse and all the, all the explanation in, in, in Acts, is first to the, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. He says that in Romans, that the gospel is the power of God into salvation, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. When he preached, he went first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. He says of himself, I, was a, I am a, 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 um, an apostle to the Gentiles, but remember, he doesn't, doesn't say, I am an apostle to the Gentiles only. He was always, and, and even before Agrippa, and even understanding his heavenly calling, says, I'm, a, I'm an apostle to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Okay? Same thing with Peter. He was an apostle to the Jew first. Then he had to have it, both of them had to have a heavenly vision to change their, their, their way of thinking. He, Peter has a heavenly vision, Jew first, now to the Gentile. When he's writing here in 1 Peter, he's writing to Gentiles primarily. There's probably Jews in there, and there's some Jewish terminology, and you can turn back to 1 Peter. But he's primarily talking to Gentiles. All right. Protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When is the last time? Is that Jesus' second coming? Yeah. That's, we're, we're talking about the second coming of Christ, which is mentioned in this book at least four times. Actually, right here early on, it says that the revelation of Jesus Christ that's mentioned here um, two or three times, just in this, just that exact phraseology, just um, a, a couple of times. So we're talking about the second coming of Christ. There are lots of different opinions on the second coming of Christ. By a lot of great, great men. But it's not, there's only one thing that we have to be consistent about. Jesus is coming back. That's what we need to know. When is he coming back? I don't know. He said nobody knows, even though we've had crazy people in the past that, oh, it's going to be this date, this date, this date, sell everything, go out. 
It says clearly, Jesus, if you just follow what Jesus said, he said, you don't know. But it doesn't matter how you view the second coming, but you do need to view the second coming as something that's very important. R.C. Sproul was a, what's called an amillennialist. He, he did not believe in dispensational theology. He did not believe in the rapture of the church to, and then church, and you have the second um, seven years of tribulation and then you have a thousand year reign of Christ and all of that. He did not believe that. John MacArthur does believe that. Now these guys are miles apart on the second coming. But you know what? They love each other. Absolutely love each other when R.C. Sproul was alive. Okay? Um, they spoke at each other's conferences. Even when they disagreed on things, you know, different stances, they for fun would have pre-conference um, debates so you could see both sides of the issue. But they always loved each other. They spoke at each other's conferences. They complimented each other. But they didn't agree. They didn't agree on a number of issues. They don't, didn't agree on infant baptism. Arthur Spohl believes in infant baptism. John MacArthur does not believe in infant baptism. But do they love each other? Yes, absolutely, they love each other. So we need to be consistent in terms of saying we believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we, we need to be a little broader when we say how that's going to happen. Now, we need to be absolute about this. We don't know when, because I believe what Jesus said. You can believe whatever, but I believe in what Jesus said. Nobody knows the day or the hour. But I am coming back. We have the promise from the angel. Jesus ascends into heaven and says, hey, this same Jesus is going to come in like manner. We know he's coming back. That's what we need to agree on. So we are what Peter is doing here and what I'm hoping to do for you as you continue on reading through um, 1 Peter. It's only five chapters. It does not take long. But there's a pattern that's set up here. He's preaching here about the, the basic source of your salvation. And so that's your salvation as well as the, the people he's talking to in, the, in these regions. Okay? And when he says Asia, your birth, in, 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 the, in the beginning of this book, he's not talking about Asia like we think of Asia. Asia was a, prophet, was a providence within the Roman Empire. Okay? It's used other places as well, that same word, Asia. So we're not talking about Asia as in the Far East. Okay? We're talking about Asia as a province, actually in Turkey. All right? So... So he's talking to these people, but he's building a foundation. The next foundation he's going to build is going to, he's going to be talking about suffering, but also when, when he gets into to suffering, he's, he's going to um, really emphasize the true faith. And, and he's, again, he's going to use the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? He, the next he's going to talk about prophecy and how important prophecy is in building your faith. And it's the same, and everything that was prophesied, he says, was proclaimed to you. And it's so important, he said, that even angels long to look into it. Prophets didn't even know fully what they were saying, but man, it is so precious that even angels wanted to look into it. So he's continuing to build a foundation. Okay? So as you continue to read through this book, think of it in terms of this book is written for me. It's not written just for these folks out here. It's written for me. I need to understand the foundation of my faith so that when I'm faced with opposition, I can stand strong in the Lord. Turn right to the, turn just to, let's say, verse 9 of chapter 2. 
this, this almost sounds like, almost like a football coach just before they go on the field, okay? Honestly, I just, one of the most fascinating games yesterday, by the way, um, to get off the subject, was um, TCU and Colorado, okay? Colorado won one game last year, one game. They haven't beaten a power five in 20-something games. So nobody, and so then here comes this guy, this rah-rah guy, and he brings in these guys, and everybody's going, oh, yeah, it ain't going to work, and he won. I could just imagine that he's probably going to win a lot more, too, but I could just imagine the rah-rah thing. Well, here, this is, we're going to get a rah-rah speech, okay? So this is a rah-rah speech from the Holy Spirit through Peter to us. What, listen to this. You, that's you and me, we are a chosen race, Woo. a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You and I, we weren't, we're not a, we weren't a people, but now what are we? We're a people of God. At one time, we didn't receive mercy, but oh, now we've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from freshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they have slandered you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Woo! I mean, he gets after it. I mean, every time I read this, man, you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God, its own possession so that you may proclaim his excellence. You weren't a people. Now you are. You didn't receive mercy. Now you have. Wow. And then he ends up with on the day of visitation. So in other words, he's, again, he's talking about the second coming of Christ. So for us, this is a rah-rah speech for us, that we will suffer persecution. Jesus said, this is going to happen. Paul's Paul talking to Timothy says, all those who will um, live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Do not expect the newspapers all of a sudden to turn around and go, oh, we love Christians. When was the last time you saw a truly uh, Hollywood movie that portrayed a Christian as anything other than an idiot or somebody who is crazy or somebody who actually is a liar or a thief or I mean in, in any kind of good light I used to watch a, um, a program on it was English television was English actors are so much better than American American actors don't even have to act anymore you know it's just all action you don't have to you have to say anything you have to do anything you have to have, just it's crazy English know how to act okay they can act Love the program. Over and over, the people on the program that are the stars, not religious, a little tolerant of religion, but always those are the weaker people. We're the stronger people. One, one detective program, um, walking out of the, they just interviewed a priest. One turns to the other said, do you think he's lying? You know what the answer was? He's a priest, isn't he? That's it. The last time I watched it. Don't expect the world to love you. It didn't love Jesus. It's not going to love you. Don't expect all of a sudden that you have a 
on, the, uh, on, on social media all of a sudden, they're in love with you. They're not going to be in love with you. In this world, you will have tribulation. All that want to live godly, you'll suffer persecution. So get over it. Get with it. Understand who you are in Christ. Stand firm in, in the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes. And we look to the greater reward. It doesn't matter what man says. It only matters what he says. Right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that we can be encouraged from your word. We can be encouraged from Christ who suffered unjustly, who paid for um, our sin when he had no sin when he became sin for us, that we might be righteous when we weren't righteous, that we were not a people, but now we are your people. And there's nothing we did in ourselves to, to deserve that or even get that. You've just caused it all to happen, and we thank you for it. And we should live our lives for it, and we pray that you would give us the strength and the encouragement and the desire and the focus to be the kind of people that you would want, to, want us to be, a holy people. You are, you're holy and you're calling us to be holy. And we pray that we would be holy in an unholy world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.